Looking for love? Professional, 27. Sincere, caring. Interests, eating out, conversation, sport and music. You're hearing some voiced up Lonely Heart adverts that were written and sent into Spare Rib, the feminist magazine of the 70s, 80s and 90s. A hapless, discontent lesbian who seeks others. Please help. A Cambridge lesbian celebrating midlife. Relishes words, wine and women. These women are searching for romance, friendship, community and fun. And today on Unfinished Business, so are we. We're delving into the worlds of lesbian leisure and queer nightlife. There was just a group of five women on the dance floor, just in wellies. And it was just like, this is the beginning of the night. Where do we go from here? It's going to get even hotter. I was very much into the idea of getting myself into my dad's rags, stepping out with my smile <laughs> and having a party. That's, you know, and, and hopefully throwing enough pheromones for someone to go, hey, <laughs> she's cute. Being in a space which is like hot and sexy and full of queer women and non-binary people grinding on each other and making out and dancing to Britney Spears, it feels amazing. It gives you confidence to like be like, I am one of this people, I am one of this crowd. It's the best high in the world. I always try and tell people this, because I think people are like, oh, club night, it's just a club night, but I don't see it that way. It's a space where we can connect with each other and reassure and reinforce each other's identities in a way which means that we can walk out in the world with our heads held high. I'm Polly Russell, a curator at the British Library, and today we're exploring how lesbians and queer women have partied, socialised and come together since the 1970s. Because it's in these moments and spaces that communities thrive and identities are confirmed. Having fun is a serious business, but it's also very much unfinished business, as today's co-host, a writer, illustrator and nightlife lover, explains. Lesbian nightlife, nightlife for queer women and non-binary people matters. We deserve to have fun just as much as anyone else, and our physical spaces are being taken away from us, and we need space to party. I'm Flo Perry, and I have unfinished business. Big up to DJ Ritu for the banging tunes, quite literally. I've curated an exhibition at the British Library called Unfinished Business, all about the history of women's rights. It's currently closed due to the pandemic, but will reopen as soon as possible. In the meantime, we have this podcast. In the series, with some fantastic co-hosts, I've been exploring the issues that need addressing now. Sexual pleasure, mental health, comedy, the list goes on. And there was one thing I was curious about. Across the exhibition at the British Library, we've got some fantastic objects which celebrate lesbian life, lesbian resistance and lesbian activism. We've included Radcliffe Hall's seminal novel of forbidden lesbian love from 1928, The Well of Loneliness, a typed out lesbian custody charter from the 1980s campaigning for lesbian parental rights, and Sarah Walter's joyful celebration of lesbian life in her 1998 book, Tipping the Velvet. And a right to self-defined sexuality was the sixth demand of the women's liberation movement of the 1970s, and lesbians have always played a vital part in fighting for women's rights. 
But I was curious about lesbian life today, especially lesbian social life, because when I was in my 20s, I remember lots of lesbian clubs and bars, but I'd heard that this was no longer the case. Apparently, LGBTQ nightlife in general is under threat. According to a 2017 report by UCL Urban Laboratory, London alone lost 58% of its LGBTQ spaces in just over a decade. When you add in the issues caused by coronavirus closures, things aren't looking too rosy. But when I thought about it, male gay pop culture still seems to be thriving, at least in the media, whether it's RuPaul's Drag Race or Queer Eye. But unless I'm missing something, lesbian presence just seems much less visible. I hold my hands up here. I'm not a lesbian and I'm not particularly young. My nightclub days are well behind me. Though after recording this podcast, I wish this wasn't the case. Anyhow, having discussed this with my more qualified friends, it seemed like this question of lesbian space today is an issue. We're going to be exploring how lesbians found each other in the past using Spare Rib, Britain's longest running feminist magazine. Almost all of the lonely hearts in the magazine are lesbian lonely hearts. These lonely hearts were not only from women who were looking for romance, but also from women looking for friendship. Uh, so for example, you get an isolated feminist uh, located in the Scottish Highlands who wanted to meet others uh, in the area. Taking a look back at what lesbian nightlife felt and sounded like in the 1980s. My first memory of a club that I went into and I actually remember going, now this is more like it, it was a club in, in Euston, it was called The Soul's Arms. I saw other women that looked like me. I, th I thought, God, there's black people here. There's black women, there's more than one. And getting sweaty in some of the hottest queer club nights happening now. I say now, obviously the pandemic has put a stop to such frivolity and fun, but all the more reason to get our metaphorical party outfits on now. I just remember seeing a sea of hands t reaching for the sky and you couldn't see the back of the room. And I just thought, my God, like, there is no other space right now in Brighton that feels like this, that is filled with people like us. Luckily, I have the wonderful Flo Perry to guide me through. Flo's illustrated numerous books, including How to Have Feminist Sex, a fairly graphic guide, which she also wrote. And she's created comics and articles for BuzzFeed. And crucially, she co-founded a queer night with a rather wonderful name. Flo Perry, thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast. I am so delighted to have you <laughs> thank here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm really excited. I know you run this club night called Aphrodite, which I just thought was the most brilliant name. That alone would have got you the podcast host position. I have to say that I co-run it. I am one of six people who runs Aphrodite, but my main contribution to Aphrodite, and apart from standing on the door and being mean to people, is I've thought of the name. <laughs> I think that lesbian nightlife has definitely suffered along with all queer nightlife and even the heterosexual nightlife, like old man pubs are also closing. <laughs> but lesbian <laughs> nightlife is still there. You just have to you have to look for it. And you can't just like turn up on a Tuesday night to a bar anymore. So I suppose that begs the question, you know, why did you set up Aphrodite with your six friends? We set up Aphrodite because all lesbian nights were on a Thursday and we actually had proper jobs at the time, which was unbelievable. Yeah, and we wanted somewhere that played pop music because we weren't very cool and we um, like dancing to Britney Spears. And I suppose, why does it matter? I suppose, why do these spaces matter? Because I suppose on one hand, it just seems very, you know, it could be just very surface, very superficial. 
I think it matters almost because it is superficial. It matters because it's fun, because it's carefree, because like we live in a, a heterosexual society and you are always in the minority. There is like an overwhelmingly powerful feeling for being in a room where you are in the majority. Female sexuality, even like heterosexual female sexuality gets squashed into like what men want. And queer female sexuality does not get the space to flourish and show off and grow and be like women being erotic for women. Talk me through this a bit, Flo, if you can, this idea of lesbian erasure. It's almost as though I got the sense that people feel like the word lesbian is not being used as much as it was, that people aren't identifying as lesbian or they don't as openly say that they're lesbian or... I mean, is that... And, and the kind of all the terminology around how people are using language to identify themselves and then how to identify their sexuality. I mean, it does feel like the word lesbian, it does feel like it's not cool, like... We often say that we're a night for queer women. And like, honestly, I don't really mind what we call it as long as like when I go there, there is like people making out with each other. <laughs> I want to like be having a wee and think in the next cubicle, like there are some suspicious sounds and there is definitely four Doc Martens under that little <laughs> like divider. <laughs> like I'm technically bisexual, but like I'm in a long term monogamous lesbian relationship. So I call myself a lesbian because I live a lesbian life, even though like, yes, technically I fancy Harry Styles, but um, <laughs> that doesn't make you not a lesbian, okay? <laughs> but does that flow, the word lesbian has some potency to it still in the way that a man saying I'm gay doesn't? Is it still more difficult to say? I guess I'm, I'm asking. Basically, it's never been like commodified in the way being gay has, like... That's Being so gay to like heterosexual people is like Graham Norton, Alan Carr is happy, it's bubbly, like it's fun. Everyone wants a gay best friend and no one wants a lesbian best friend. Lesbian is like used as an insult often to like call women ugly, even though lesbians are the hottest people I know. And Ellen, even when she came out, the most like heterosexual friendly of us all said that she like had the cover that was like gay, didn't she? The Time magazine cover. And so it's never been used in a kind of happy-go-lucky way. It's always been associated with, like, veganism and political movements or, like, kind of straight male porn. So what is it that you want to learn or explore from this podcast with the various people that you're going to be speaking to? Um, first and foremost, I am extremely excited about speaking to anyone who went to Gateways because it has a kind of mythical status in my mind as, like... Uh, so that's going to be know. Yvonne later on in the podcast, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm so yeah. excited about talking to her. It's just like the first lesbian club. And I just imagine it as this kind of secret underground society in this haven for lesbianness, which like was, you know, so rare in the day. And I just imagine it as like in a completely homophobic society, this one little drop of gold, basically. I always like chatting to other club promoters and seeing... The challenges, because it is definitely a unique challenge hosting a lesbian night. You're creating a place of, I kind of hate the term safe space for a club night because like we are not group therapy, but we are a place of safety. And like we always say in Aphrodite, like it just takes us letting in one wrong man and for him to commit some form of sexual assault in our club night for like, for the whole, like no one would come again because no one would feel safe and it would be awful and we wouldn't want to host mm. it again. Mm. And that is like a constant threat that you get as a lesbian night. And that's not very fun, but, <laughs> but I think that is like the unique challenge. 
and finding spaces for lesbians and queer women isn't a new challenge. Before we get deep into the pumping heart of the clubs, I wanted to introduce Flo to a colleague of mine at the British Library. Eleanor Careless is the research associate for a great research project called The Business of Women's Words, which looks at feminist entrepreneurialism in the 70s and 80s. Eleanor's created an interactive map of feminist activity taking place across the UK during the women's liberation movement, based on letters and listings taken from Spare Rib. As you click through the map, which is available on the British Library's Spare Rib website, one theme that emerges is lesbian organising and socialising. I thought we just had to speak to Eleanor so she could share some of her favourite examples. There are businesses, there are local consciousness raising groups, there are dating services, uh, Lonely Heart adverts, job adverts. Um, Would you like to share with us any like specific ads that you think give us a snapshot into what lesbian life might have been like in the 70s, 80s and early 90s? There are so many Lonely Heart adverts. I think they're my favourite part of the map. And I think what you can see from the map is that the Lonely Hearts, the uh, column in Spare Rib, I think was one of the most important resources that Spare Rib provided for its lesbian readers. Almost all of the Lonely Hearts in the magazine are lesbian Lonely Hearts. These Lonely Hearts were not only from women who were looking for romance, but also from women looking for friendship. Uh, so, for example, you get Shropshire Lesbian seeking friendship, who placed an ad in 1985, and an isolated feminist uh, located in the Scottish Highlands who wanted to meet others uh, in the area. Um, she placed an ad in 1979. And then you get, alongside that, the emergence of pen pal clubs, such as Lesbian Link in Wales, which is a pen friendship agency for older, isolated or disabled lesbians. So you, you get this really interesting like call and response between individual readers asking for something, a service or looking for networks, looking for other people like them. And then the listings which provide that service or provide a network. I loved exploring the map myself earlier as well. I loved clicking about. I saw a lot of the like, Please, anyone, I want a feminist friend in North Ayrshire. That's <laughs> 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 <was> very sweet. <laughs> of course, you also have the very definitely looking for romance, lonely heart ads. Yeah, I'm very interested in them. <laughs> and there again, they're from all over the UK. So you have, you have a Northern Irish lesbian who describes herself as professional, 27, sincere, caring, and describes her interests as eating out, conversation, sport, and music. Uh, and there's a lesbian in Cumbria who self-describes wonderfully as a hapless, discontent lesbian who seeks others. Please help. That's in 1985. Um, perhaps most exuberantly, there, there's an ad placed by a Cambridge lesbian celebrating midlife in 1991 and she says that she relishes words wine and women <laughs> so they were clearly having hot. having fun with their, their lonely heart ads i feel like uh, lesbian culture has like a, a rich history of lonely heart ads i mean for like for most people they're kind of dead now but we we actually have an app of lonely heart ads uh, called lex which evolved from an Instagram page called Personals, which I actually submitted to when I was single and had no luck with. But it's obviously something maybe that appeals uh, especially to lesbians. Apart from the Lonely Hearts ads, I'm really interested in 
the businesses and the clubs which were like lesbian focused which put ads out there especially any kind of holiday vibe thing i've always wanted to go on like kind of lesbian package holiday it's a dream of mine <laughs> yeah so funny you should mention lesbian holidays because there was yeah an, another wonderful uh, series of institutions which show up on the map the women only b&bs and some of these were lesbian only b&bs and they seemed to proliferate in the 1980s through to the early 1990s uh, i think the best of them has to be wild lilies bed and breakfast based in swansea which advertised itself <laughs> amazingly as a retreat for i'm quoting lesbians in love windy walks continental breakfasts don't delay <laughs> i would totally book into wild lilies tomorrow <laughs> Uh, there were Welsh farmhouses that would get turned into lesbian B&Bs for a couple of months in the summer. And up in Scotland, in Dumfries and Galloway, lesbian holidays were advertised at a venue which offered dorm-type accommodation, which could host up to 75 women. That sounds rowdy. And that, that was an advert <laughs> from 1979, so slightly older than some of the bed and breakfasts. Um, in 1983, apparently, that 75 women dorm in Scotland was turned into a lesbians and children summer camp. Maybe children from all the previous relationship that it had created four years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get into this lesbian holiday industry. This needs to be my next business venture. <laughs> Can you see from these letters and these ads, what do you think the differences is between lesbian culture then versus now? In some ways, perhaps they're more tentative in that there seems to be, I guess, that the listings you see are from women who are looking to establish networks, looking to build communities, especially where those communities don't exist. So I think perhaps that sort of sense of things in their early stages is the sort of hallmark of, of lots of these listings, which I imagine is slightly different from adverts for similar now. I'm actually struck by how similar it all sounds. <laughs> I mentioned before this Lex app of personal ads, but also like um, I follow on Instagram loads of like lesbian meme accounts. They also act as like personal ads and you get people from like all, all over the world connecting through like these meme accounts posting about like what it's like when you're two lesbians trying to introduce your cats, basically. Um, <laughs> and they also are quite political spaces. I think that it's hard to find a lesbian space that doesn't have a kind of feminist edge, basically, because obviously we are all women and we have all experienced sexism. There's some brilliant links, I think, as well, between lesbian organising then and lesbian organising now. I stumbled upon something called the Border Women Project, um, which was advertised in was it 1985 for the first time. It was um, a project which intended to bring together local lesbians living on the borders of Herefordshire, Powys and Shropshire. And they'd had a successful <laughs> first meeting and the listing in Spare Rib was advertising the first ever local lesbian disco. And I looked up Border Women and it, it seems that actually that first meeting uh, was incredibly successful because the project is still running now and it's now wow. online at borderwomen.net. <laughs> That's amazing. Speaking of things happening now, let's get the tracksuit bottoms off and something sparkly on and head out. 
After nearly a year of social distancing and being holed up with the same four people in a suburban terrace, I am longing to get sweaty and dance with a bunch of strangers in a loud dark room again. So, while we can't actually get out, the next best thing, we're going to vicariously queue up, hand in our coats and enter the nightclubs of two people who are very much in the know. Zandis and Tabs, or Tabitha Benjamin, run some of the biggest and best nights for queer women and non-binary people in Brighton and London. There was a specific Brighton event we had uh, and it was torrentially raining outside and we just thought, oh, no one's going to come out. And I just remember in the middle of the night just seeing a sea of hands reaching for the sky and you couldn't see the back of the room. And I just thought, my God, like, there is no other space right now in Brighton that feels like this, that is filled with people like us. And it just felt so special and so unique. Yeah, aside from that, really, it's just any time everyone's just decided it's take your clothes off a clock or... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but they are definitely my memories from from Aphrodite. I've had a lot of arguments with like bar staff about boobs, basically. Oh, wow. <laughs> In true pandemic style, we all met up on Zoom. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hiya. With their partner, Zandis started a club night in Brighton and London that centres queer women and plays music by women. The night's called Gal Pals. I'll let Flo take over from here. For any uh, heterosexual people listening, I don't know, maybe you are, <laughs> but Gal Pals is like a, a lesbian in-joke where basically the media uh, won't say that two women are in a loving sexual relationship, but they have to describe them as just Gal Pals who live together. Um, and, you know, spend Christmas together and bring up children together. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm guessing that is why you called it Gal Pals. 100%. <laughs> Tabs, would you like to tell us what is Butch, Please? And what is the origin? How did such an amazing night come to be? I started Butch, Please about six years ago now. Uh, I, I always like to say that I started the night because... Um, I really felt like there wasn't a night dedicated to butch women on the scene, butch dykes. And I didn't really feel anywhere at home on the scene. So I was like, well, I'm just going to put on the kind of night that I'd really like to go to. So we did it, did it at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. And I mean, it was mental. It, I mean, it was a, definitely <laughs> a night which changed my life forever. And it was a night that made me feel and really know and deeply understand that I wasn't alone in the world in how I felt mm -hmm. and how I experienced the world and, you know, the, the violence that I've suffered and the constant questioning of the validity of who you are. And I just, when I saw all these other amazing, cool, queer people at the night, I was just like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. So I've carried on doing it ever since. And it's got so big now. It's I always like to say it's sort of taken on a life of its own, really. I feel like it's really mm. travelled beyond me. People come up to me and say, oh, you know, I got married because of Butch, please. I met someone I married. And I honestly have had like a worrying amount of people come up to me and say that. <laughs> like, a lot When's of people. When's the first Butch, please divorce? That's I what know. I want to know. <laughs> I love it. I've been to Butch, please. And I had, I've had such a good night every time. Uh, Did I, you get I, married I'm, after? I No, I have not <laughs> married yet, but watch this space. <laughs> 
I am as good as engaged to a butch woman. So maybe we could have oh, a butch please wedding. There we go. <laughs> I would totally love to do a butch please wedding. Honestly, call me. I'll do it. <laughs> Tabs, do you have any specific memories of a particular night? Do you have a moment that sums up butch please for you? I mean, yeah, I've got loads and loads and loads, to be honest, but kind of like when the venue's packed and people feel really free to express themselves to the extent that, yeah, they take their clothes off. I I literally, at the end of the night, I met a, an older woman, actually, who's a, a regular, and uh, the coat check guy was, like, helping put her bra back on because she checked <laughs> it into the coat check. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I always, I always uh, when I started Butch Please, I always said, you know, wear what you like, be nice, have a good time. I mean, I rode into the RVT on the back of a Harley Davidson when we did Dykes on Bikes. That was pretty that epic. That is insane. <laughs> I know. It was, quite, it was quite epic. But I think one of the most memorable moments recently, um, uh, Baby Dyke came up to me, Butch Dyke called Grace, came up to me and said, hey, you don't, you don't know me, but I know you. Because when I was at school, I used to sit at the window and I'd see you walk your dog up the road. And... I used to see you, and when I saw you, I, I knew that there was hope and that one day I was going to be able to be myself. And I literally, like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, you know, because sometimes you're walking down the street, aren't you, and you're like, oh, it's a shit day. Why are you looking at me like that? And, you know, you, you can feel quite under threat. And it really reminded me that, actually, you never know who's looking. You never know who's watching. Someone who hasn't fully realised who they are could be looking at you and you could be inspiring them just by being you, just by walking your dog down the street. Yep, Grace comes every butch please now and has the best time. <laughs> that is absolutely incredible. Role models and being visible in the community, even if that's just on the street, is so important. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose it reminded me as well, Like, and I, and I always try and tell people this, because I think people are like, oh, club night, it's just a club night, but I don't see it that way. I've never seen Butch Please that way. It's not just a club night. It's a space where people, where we can connect with each other and reassure and reinforce each other's identities in a way which means that we can walk out in the world with our heads held high, and that's really crucial and really important. I totally, totally agree. Yeah, you've actually kind of just answered my next question, which is why does it matter if there are spaces where lesbian and non-binary people party. How political do you think these spaces are? What is the politics to your club night? When I talk about my own butch identity quite a lot, I, I reference Hannah Gadsby, you know, and she talks about being an incorrect woman, because I think it really sums up something, you know, quite neatly, which is like, you know, it's, it's we really suffer in the world for being an incorrect woman, as well as experiencing because I always like to say it's not just a negative experience. You know, I also have had a wonderful life and experienced a wonderful, amazing community, have had wonderful sex, have had wonderful friends, have experienced all these amazing things. But, you know, we do experience these things in the world. And, yeah, as I say, to come together and to know that we stand with each other, stand behind each other, and to reconnect with all those who've come before us as well. You know, mm. because that's one of the big things about Butch Please is I really believe in intergenerational dialogue and connection. And that's crucial in us understanding and sharing our history and our history of surviving and taking that and, and using it as a strength in order to go forward. And that is yeah. a political act. I, I totally agree. And I, I love that stuff that you say about the intergenerationalness. I wish Aphrodite, like we've had the like occasionally like elder lesbian come but we really skew young. Elder I'm lesbian. feeling older and older. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I, think it's, I think it's partly because Butch 
you know, is is something which I think has has always existed with a, a strong element of intergenerational connection. Because, you know, for me, it wasn't until I met an older butch woman that I was like, OK, I can do this. This is something that exists. Because mm. all of the other representations I saw around me since when I was really small were really super negative. When I was little, I, I actually thought, because I, I watched Bad Girls on TV. I don't know if you guys were a bit young for that, maybe. <laughs> no, I remember Bad Girls. It was, a, it was set in a women's prison and there were a couple of dykes in it. So I actually thought you had to go to prison to be a lesbian. Like, I actually <laughs> thought that. What you've said just kind of is encapsulated in the you can't be what you can't see and being able to visualise yourself as growing old as a queer person is just so powerful and so being in those kind of spaces with other elder queers younger queers just seeing like there's so much growth and learning in those spaces i've played butch please uh yes you have yeah, yeah. of course amazing I had, I had an incredible time and i really felt so held in that space in a way i've never never felt as like a masculine gender non-conforming person so it's so special to have that and to see your future, you know, essentially. Bearing all that in mind, I wanted to leave Zandis and Tabs for a moment to introduce Flo to some pretty inspiring women. Yvonne Taylor is a club promoter who's been partying hard since the 1970s and has been working tirelessly to create spaces for black lesbians and women of colour. With a friend, she created the Queer Ball in 2018, which she describes as a club night for all queers and friends. There are burlesque performances, drag king acts and much, much more. And Shardine Taylor-Stone, writer, activist and drummer of the hugely influential all-black feminist punk band Big Joni. A regular on the Pride Power List, in 2017, Shardine won the British LGBT Plus Award for Outstanding Contribution to LGBT Plus Life. Hi, Flo. Hi. So nice to meet you guys. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me about lesbian and queer women nightlife. What a fun topic <laughs> to talk about on a drizzly afternoon. Starting with Yvonne, she grew up in Nottingham and as a young person, she joined the army. But her club career started after a memorable weekend in London. In November 1977, me and one of my army buddies spent a whole weekend in London, trudging through the different types of community events that were on. And, and the first place I went to was Gateways. That weekend I went to Gateways. I also went to the Black Cap. Mm. Um, I wouldn't leave my house necessarily to listen to the music that they were playing at the time, but it was all we had. So we just went along and, and Gateways is a prime example of that. I mean, it wasn't that I didn't like the music, but it, it you know, I didn't really leave my house to listen to Doris Day or, you know, Dusty Springfield or any, you know, any of those. What was the first place that you went to that you did feel like you fitted into? My first memory of a club that I went into, and I actually remember going, now this is more like it, was a club in, in Euston. It was called the Soul's Arms. I saw other women that looked like me. I, th I thought, God, there's black people here. There's black women, there's more than one. That was playing a lot of disco tunes, a lot of um, oh, lesbian anthems. There was the um, Gloria Gaynor tune, I Will Survive. So I kind of thought, oh, hang on a minute here. Things are looking up. <laughs> and did you go to any 
house parties in the in the 80s and the 70s for lesbians? In the 80s, the parties were very much about groups of women doing their own thing. And so one of the first parties that I, I ran myself was at South London Women's Centre. But prior to us starting that, there were several other black women that were running like what we call Shabines Blues in the South London Women's Centre uh, in Brixton. Probably the hottest place to go to in the 80s if you were a, you know, a woman of colour. Yeah, but the parties I went to that weren't mine were predominantly, I'd say, 98% black women. Yes, I did go to those because it just gave me a sense of, oh, God, I'm not on my own. And uh, these parties were a bit about, you know, not only you know, for me getting dressed up and possibly meeting somebody that I might like to hang out with more than a, as a mate. Uh, I think that's what the parties yeah. are still about today. <laughs> I think that never changes. Yeah. <laughs> And I was very much into the idea of getting myself into my dad rags, stepping out with my smile <laughs> and having a party. That's, you know, and hopefully throwing enough pheromones for somebody to go, hey, <laughs> she's cute. I love that. I was wondering, like, how much were these house parties that you were organising in the 80s for black lesbians? How much was that connected to anti-racist organising and activism? I ended up meeting these three of the black women that kind of say, we want to run this party and we want to kind of, we'll do it at the South London Women's Centre. So when I went there, that was my kind of sharpest awakening of women in politics. The word feminism, you know, suddenly took on a different meaning than the one, you know, the press would always sort of throw out there in the 70s. And then, and of course, then we, I met other black women that were parts of, you know, specific black groups or Asian groups or, you know, just women of colour groups. You know, when we were doing the parties, it was partly because we weren't given access to venue spaces at all. I ended up DJing quite a lot at um, various feminist political gatherings, if you like, whether that was in a home or it was to raise money for the women's rights groups, the women's AIDS groups. Mm. Shardine, how does your music and Big Joni, what are the politics of Big Joni? We're a black feminist punk bands but I mean I think we named ourselves that because we were all black feminists as opposed to like the sort of messages in our music particularly um Steph is a main songwriter I think most of it is just a lot of stream of consciousness thoughts about everyday stuff and that sort of thing which I think is really important as well. So I think sometimes, you know, if you're saying you're in a political band, you know, people think that you're going to be like Billy Bragg or something like that. And I love Billy Bragg. <laughs> but I think there's all, particularly for women, there's like, and particularly for black women, there's always that space just to talk about just everyday things, like your inner world. And I think that's really important. I think that's what we represent more than anything. And all the activist work that we do outside it as well. So obviously I do socialist, trade union, LGBT activist stuff. What do you think that um, activism today can learn from the attitude of punk? Punk was what introduced me to politics, definitely. I mean, I mentioned Billy Bragg and, you know, people like that. And I think it's still very much like anti-establishment. I just don't think that will ever change. And um, I think, I guess, in terms of the kind of activism that we're seeing today is sort of, you know, moving into this kind of commercialised way and sort of working with these, like, big companies and all this kind of stuff 
they're often really nuts and bolts problematic. And I think having that sort of punk background always keeps you questioning what is it that those people want from you Mm. and what are they gaining from you from that? And, you know, trying to keep some sense of, like, your values. Totally. I mean, a lot of, you know, the stuff that Yvonne just talked about was people just getting up and doing things themselves. It's like, oh, we want to do a club night, let's do it. Oh, we want to open up a women's centre, let's fight for it. Yeah, I think you're totally right about... Obviously, we need money and big corporations have money and they want to look cool and like they're not homophobic by giving money to us. But, you know, at the same time, we are giving something to them. We are giving our kudos as queer people and for you guys, queer people of colour that like gives them a label of like, look, we're not racist. We're not homophobic. Well, yeah, I mean, just look at the way Pride is funded. And yeah, I kind of like think all of those corporate things that just not good for us they're not they're making us lazy i mean i haven't been to london pride for a while actually i prefer going to like the smaller city prides really these days and obviously black pride as well but um i always find like women are often just completely marginalized in those spaces so i don't really like it that much really and in terms of like who's on the big stages and stuff you know it's not like people like yvonne djing it's either (laughs) like it goes from like drag queen to straight woman that queers like. And that's like, that's the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> and then Sue Perkins. And then that's it. People are just stuck in their ways. And, and music and things, you know, that we do in, around music can change that for me. You know, the clubs that we run, the, the festivals that we run, they need to come better. They need to come so that people. You know, it feels safe enough to step out into that. I think then when we come out of this whole COVID thing, it is going to be a going back to the old basics. You know, in the 70s, there were hardly any women's clubs and the ones that were there were not the most user-friendly. But people went along and they went, oh, yeah, but we could do something to improve that. You know, when I used to go out in the 70s, we had different types of lesbians and so you had a better experience and now you could actually go to a club where it's just solely the person or the people that look like you. And so we're kind of being separated. Yeah, in terms of like LGBT nights, the closest that I've had in that experience probably has been going to, you know, Yvonne's Queer Ball or even Butch Please. Yes. Which is multi-generational and multicultural. I really want to go to the queer ball after the after Corona. I will I will see you both there hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I even can remember what going out is. Like you know, do so I get dressed? <laughs> do I just go in my jogging bottoms? I don't know. Like. No, no. Can I get in him anymore? <laughs> don't tell me. What did you think of that conversation? Was I mean, did it fulfil your dream about the gateways? I love that she thought gateways was lame. I think that's almost kind of... <laughs> that's almost better to know that, like, when Yvonne was starting to party, it was, like, the older, uh, lamer, more kind of mainstream lesbian club on the scene that she thought yeah, was a bit they're playing, lame. It's hilarious that they were playing sort of Perry Como and Doris Day. Yeah. Now you don't have to feel bad that you, you're never going to go. Yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably be too cool for gateways if I was around back then. <laughs> no, who am I kidding? <laughs> I would have loved it. I love Doris Day. 
Who doesn't? Uh, I thought it was also really interesting, her description of the South London Women's Centre mm. and that kind of coming together of different groups to socialise uh, at that time in the 80s and that that was kind of new, that before it had been, you know, lesbian, white lesbians, black lesbians, feminists, and that they came together in that space. It just shows that, like, the same problems there of, like, trying to find a venue are the same problems now. And on that note, let's rejoin the conversation with Zandis and Tabs as they discuss how queer nightlife is faring now. I mean, generally, nightlife is kind of... It's been struggling across the board because people don't go out in the same way they, they used to. And generally, I would say that uh, a lot of queer communities maybe have less access to uh, money, so they can't go out in the same way that people do and uh, or maybe don't own venues. There's definitely a good point now, as opposed to in the past. Mm. There are, for example, no lesbian-owned and run bars in London. Exactly. And that's a big barrier to people putting on nights. That's been one of the biggest barriers for us finding a, a home venue in, in London is having to move because of clashing with a venue, because of the security, having to train everybody just impromptu before you open yeah. the doors and make sure that they're going to treat your guests with respect. So for specifically, for example, we have a lot of trans and non-binary people who come along and they may have an ID that doesn't match how they present or what they look like. And it's about handling those things sensitively and treating people with the respect that they deserve when they're entering the venue, because that experience is going to paint their whole night. You know, I am, I'm very, very lucky at the Vauxhall Tavern, but it is still run by gay men. And, you know, as best as they try and sort of like accommodate and, and understand what my night's about, that is, a, that is a constant process. There's so many layers. Like, if you, if you consider disability as well and the fact that Sure, LGBT exactly. people are, are more likely to experience disability than their peers. That is a huge barrier for access yeah, to for many venues. Yeah. Uh, that's been the... In fact, most of them. Exactly. <laughs> I think, like, the other really difficult thing about running a, a lesbian night, well, for me, certainly, is by nature, I think, for a lesbian night to work, you have to have a door policy. Because unlike maybe gay male nights, straight men will want to come to lesbian nights and without having like someone on the door saying no then you, you do not have a lesbian night so I, I was wondering like how do you balance that like how do you have a door policy without being exclusionary I think it's okay to be exclusionary <laughs> there's so much other <laughs> there's so much other space for people to go go somewhere else that we I mean we've done nights on in Dalston and obviously on the strip there you're going to have lots of different walk up from different kind of groups and and that's where we've had to execute mm. our door policy more stringently and be more explicit and say, you know, this is a night specifically centering queer women, LGBT people, trans and non-binary people. We're more on the side of if someone says they want to be in that space, then we will allow them entry to that space. How have you found it, Tabs? Uh, I, look, when I first started Butch Please and I put up on the first Facebook event that it was... Um, a night for lesbians. I got massively trolled and I found it very difficult because I was like, well, why can't I say... I haven't said that anyone else is excluded. I've said it's, you know, and it's an LGBT night, but it is going to mm. be centred on lesbians and it's going to be centred on Butch Dykes. But it was, a, it was a, apparent to me right then that this is something which is actually super controversial. But I think any spaces which are hinting at being women's spaces often are. I wanted to ask you guys, what, what do you think your relationship is with your club night and 
sex. Because I often feel like when you see like a, a Facebook ad for a, a gay male club night, in the description it just says like, boys, nipples, leather, dance. And like, that's it. And then it just has a picture of a naked man for the thing. And like, lesbian club nights are not like that. And I wondered like, what, what do you think your club night's relationship is basically with sex? I think Butch um, Please is like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think Butch Please is incredibly sexy. It very Straight much fulfills up. my sexual You know, fantasy. but I believe in club spaces as sexy spaces. I am married and don't have sex with all the people who've asked to have sex with me as a result of running Butch Please, <laughs> but I would have <laughs> if I wasn't. But I think, I think sex is absolutely the heart of of club nights and it should be i mean i've seen everything at butch please people really you know and and i i guess i do encourage it we we have done um spin the bottle on stage wow we've done an orgasm competition we've done erotic reading competition that was really intense i might do that again actually that was really good um <laughs> i might do a butch please that's just nipples what did you say? Nipples, <laughs> leather. I would definitely come to that. I mean, when we did butch leather, butch leather was off the scale. I mean, people really went for it. There were chaps with nothing underneath. I mean, fantastic. That's that is incredible. I love this question because I actually had to look up something one of my friends said to me after she'd come for the first time. I'm going to read it <laughs> if that's OK. The crowd were amazing, really cool and really horny. She said the front <laughs> The front had this amazing femme energy and people just making out with each other. And all the dudes, all two of them, were mostly just standing off to the side. <laughs> so gal bars is always, even though I feel like we come across as quite like, I don't know, like quite wholesome. When you get in the club, that's just like, <laughs> it's just like, you're gonna hook up with somebody tonight. It's just also fun looking at the photos afterwards and just seeing the same person making out with different people across, <laughs> across one evening and just knowing that you're going to get a message saying, please take that one down. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. Oh, you, someone's taking a photo of me kissing this person that's not my girlfriend. I'm like, well, maybe you shouldn't have done that. I mean, yeah. I don't know. No, I mean, whatever. People can do whatever, but... Yeah. Oh, my gosh. But So, yeah, I am very passionate about the fact that we should remember that yeah these spaces are for, for dancing with your friends and connecting with your community but also for hooking up like getting dirty in a toilet cubicle <laughs> <laughs> because we can't do that in a regular pub no, you know, no. That's, that's the point that's that's the, i kiss my own wife in my own club and i would never do that on the bus it was fantastic hearing flo zandis and tabs's chat but I wanted to know what they hoped for the future of partying. Every time someone in the Aphrodite queue complains to me about how long the queue is, I'm just like, set up your own club night, <laughs> please. I'm like, I'm desperate to go yeah, some more. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I see kids in the queue and I think, no, I don't want you to be queuing. Like, I wish we had a bigger venue. I wish we could do this every night of the week. Yeah. You know, yeah. And in the 80s, there was a dyke night every single night of the week. Yeah. And it's not competition, it's actually we all no, succeed, no. we all thrive when every night succeeds because there is mm. choice, there is community, even more opportunity to connect. And I would love, I would love to see more queer nights popping up. I'd love to see more queer venues. Yeah, owned and run spaces. That would more, be the more, dream. More, 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 To be able to get like scampi and chips on a Tuesday at a lesbian club. <laughs> oh. Is that code for something or do you literally mean scampi no. and chips? <laughs> 
I just really like battered prawns. There you go, you've just started your own night. <laughs> it's called Scampi and Chips. <laughs> Tell me whether there's anything that's really surprised you in speaking to all these various guests about this subject, or is it exactly as you imagined it would be? <laughs> I definitely recognise the lesbian culture of the 70s and 80s, of how we've learned about it through the spare rib listings and talking to Yvonne. I, I feel at home in, in this culture, and I love the feeling, and like Tab spoke about it so beautifully when she was speaking about Butch Please, the feeling of how like the lesbian nightlife of today relates back through to like the lesbian nightlife of the 70s and beyond i I'm, I'm so happy to be part of that culture basically it's it's such a joyous thing to be part of it's so important for us on the minorities to take up space and to have fun and it it's always been a struggle and it's still a struggle today in just practical terms like getting funding that doesn't come from like evil corporate sponsors that want to use us for cool brownie points, you know, and finding a space where we can reserve it for, you know, and keep it safe and reserve it for the people who need it most. I, I know it will keep going. I know there will always be other lesbians like me who, who, who just want to play the music they like to listen to and make out, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and Flo, what is the single thing you are most looking forward to doing when COVID is over and we can get hot and sweaty with strangers again? Oh my God. I'm, I know that before the next Aphrodite, I'm going to be so nervous because I'm going to like have forgotten how to do it and I'm just going to, I'm going to like stand on the door at like half 10 and be like, ah, is it all going to go okay? Um, but so what I'm looking forward to is it, is it being like one o'clock, like I've done a couple of shifts on the door I'm standing in the room, it's packed. I'm looking around me like most of the people I don't know, but my friends are there too. Everyone is snogging, everyone is dancing. And I'm just looking forward to that feeling of group euphoria, which I feel like you get in music venues, in clubs, and that we've all missed so much. I feel like I've had the tiniest taste of that <laughs> euphoria just by hanging out with you for these last few days and hours and it has been a total delight <laughs> i will invite you polly I'm... to our next Aphrodite. <gasps> you can be guest list <laughs> we don't have a guest list it'll be a guest list of one. <laughs> oh my god that would be so exciting <laughs> back to the lonely hearts quest at the start of the episode i feel like things have become a little less lonely in the intervening years thanks so much to all of my guests zandis armor tabs benjamin to yvonne taylor shardine taylor stone and to eleanor careless and of course to my amazing co-host flo perry i'm polly russell this has been a PixU production for the British Library. If you've enjoyed the episode, please leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. And as soon as possible, see you at the exhibition or on the dance floor. Mm -hmm.